point. You got me? It sound good? All right, we're fine. So this episode is about the moment, which is a sort of vague idea, notion. Uh, both interviews with Jason Scott, a.k.a. Get Over Her, and Dave Harrington. Get Over Her. <laughs> ended up taking this turn to, like, reminiscing about a certain, like, Particular time. moment? Yeah, but, like, a and yes. And that moment happened to be similar for both of them. But before I get into that, I'm here with Chris Black. Say hi. What's really good? Done to death I'm projects. Here. I'm here. Like always, every episode of Point. The what was the ta- the little the little handle for the show? Each episode explores one theme through culture, through the people creating culture. One theme through the people creating culture. There you go. Um wait, I'm trying to pull up so so pod I feel talking about the moment, right? I feel like newsletters are having a little bit of a moment. Uh they definitely are having a moment. Are they in the new podcast? Um I think they're peaking. Well, the all, A-W-L, the all.com has this really great newsletter called Everything Changes. It's really, it's it's very strange and it makes you think every single time. And also they tell stories using the newsletter like medium creatively. In other Mm. words, it's like gifts or, for instance, this one. I just got this, and I was. This is this morning at four a.m. I mean, I didn't see it then. You were but. you were still up, so it was no problem for you. <laughs> but this was like I was like, "What? This is so weird." Everything changes. So basically, what this one is? Let's try this. Find the voice memo app on your phone. Hit record and answer this question: Is there a moment in your past you'd like to return to? What would you do or not do? If you'd like attribution, start your voice. Basically, then send the file to the author of Everything Changes the Newsletter, Laura. So I'm actually going to do it. That's right a great now. idea, man. Thank. It's like a weird podcast within a podcast. Yeah, yeah. So very I just, meta, bro. I just press record. Hi, my name is Matt. Um, the moment I'd like to return to, I was outside my office a couple hours ago, bouncing a lacrosse ball, and it took me back to. There was a Jewish bakery on the corner where I lived in Boston. I was growing up, and I was probably like I don't know, twelve. And I used to just throw the lacrosse ball against the brick wall and for hours. And it was, I would love to just go back to like pre high school, throwing this lacrosse ball against a brick wall nicely, minding my own business outside, and then go back inside and like nerd out about like music and all that. And everything was much simpler. Exactly. Much simpler time. And what I would not do would uh, be, I would not um, smoke so much weed. Because then I would have continued uh, playing guitar and liking music and stuff. <laughs> well, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I press. I'm done with that part, the multimedia part. But the reason I go, well, it, it's the reason I go back to that moment was because, like I said, Dave, Jason, both on this episode. When I asked them about how they got to this moment today, they both went back. We ended up talking about this like 2000s time when like a formative music scene like shaped yeah. their their present for Jason it was um when like spank rock and like all that new york city yes, kind of yes. like 
electro hip hop. I think club it was music. called Electro Clash. Yeah. If you want to get or, or Bloghouse. Bloghouse. Exactly. Bloghouse is the funniest name. Well, I love it. I, I love was. It. I remember. Well, them jeans was here. We talked about Bloghouse. Yeah. Blog, well, it's having a little like a track is putting out these Bloghouse mixes. Oh shit. Now oh, Aoki no. might have done one too. It's, so it's, we're already in two thousands uh, nostalgia, are we? Oh yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, every every generation likes to look back. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's just like. The haircuts are a lot more embarrassing this time around, maybe, than, you know, if you're in the 70s or whatever. I can't imagine what was a haircut. All I know about the mid-2000s was, like, collars were outside of, like, the, sh- the blazer sometimes. Do you ever see that on TV? You're like, when did people stop yeah. putting the collar outside of the blazer? That's that's back, too, though. That's, like, oh, a fashion geez. thing. You know what I mean? That's But that, I know what you mean. I know exactly what you're talking It just about. stopped one day. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so Jason was like, I, he's like, the big thing for me was, like, that 2000s New York City, like, club Thing he was talking about all these clubs on the west side, and then Dave a little bit early in the 2000s. But this one, I, I was really into the spank rock thing that Jason's talked about that helped that got me into DJing. But earlier than that, a little bit closer into the lacrosse ball against the wall moment, um, uh, he talked about like it kind of comes from a jam band world and like all this weird, like Medeski, Martin, and Wood, also in New York City, jazz music thing that got to where he is today. And Dave is. Jason Scott uh, is a rapper. It goes by the name Get Over Her. And um, he has a song out called Baby Oil. It's really good. And Dave is in the group Dark Side with Nicholas Jar, which is like a sort of progressive rock um, electronic band. But he also does a ton of stuff on his own that we'll get into in the interview. My question to you is, I know you had a music past. What was that moment like for you with music I 2000s? Mean, that was shit. Well, it was hardcore and punk until you know 20 probably and then it and then it's full on you know well it wasn't just hardcore and punk but it was majority you know of that and then it was probably like you know the smiths and the pixies and you know primal scream and like all that oasis and i was really into all british shit you know um but in the i mean i was going out all the time and it was in atlanta for whatever reason it was mostly like brit pop that was like what you would hear out really yeah i mean that's what that that's what we were doing at least so you would hear blur and like oasis you know all that kind of stuff at at a club in in a club environment and that's what was really popular during that era that's so weird. and then and then it got and then once all that you know the electro clash and that shit started popping that became you would hear that more um but I, I have the best memories of hearing that stuff, of, of hearing that kind of stuff in, a, in like, a club setting. And then you moved to New York. Yeah, I moved to New York, and I still went out. I mean, I went to, like, I went out then still. And I was coming to New York a lot then, too, so I, I was going out. And it was, but, I mean, it would always be, I just was never that interested in electronic music, so that never really crossed my, you know, even if you would go, I mean, I went to some of those places, like APT and places like that that were still around then, and I don't even remember. Sway, lit. Yes, yeah, all that stuff. But lit was never electronic music. No, neither was sway, really, to my in my memory. And we would go to Motherfucker when that was a thing. Oh, I don't know right. if you remember that, which was like a. It was. A I read sh- about that on Gawker. That what was that column? Um, oh my god, it was so funny. It made fun of all the Motherfucker was a great party. It was just, especially if you're not from New York at the time, and you could. It was very. It was on. It was only on holiday weekends. That was the whole thing. So it was. Like, oh right, right, right. It would. You know, that's when it would happen, and it would. It just for me, it was pretty eye opening because it was like a real nightlife experience with you know, the drag queens and the weird. It's just really that kind of New York thing where it's every single person in one room going nuts, and it's like everybody's happy and having a good time. <laughs> so would you return to that moment? Probably not. No, I mean, <laughs> I think I got my fill. Um, 
but it was very formative. I agree. I think all that stuff is, I, I just don't know what people are doing during that time in their lives if they're not going out. And like, I just, I can't even imagine what you do. I, I, you know, I guess you're in grad school or something. I don't know. I just don't, I don't know what you're doing if you're that age and you're not going out and listening to music. And that's just everyone I know, that's what they did. So I don't really know what you do. It's funny you mentioned people in New York going out, listening to music, and actually having a really good time. Yes. Because the reason I wanted to talk to Dave Harrington about a specific moment was because I went to his Boiler Room set recently. Well, we get into it later in the interview, but um, I was, like, so happy to be there because people were, like, genuinely happy, mm. really excited to listen no to the cool music. No guy going on? No. It was, like, I... none. It was so weird. It was, like... It was like, weird. It was, like, this oasis in the Why city. Why do you think that is? I think... Boiler Room, well, was that this place? New- Boiler Room's like diehards. So. Right, you're there for the music. Yes. And I think, it was at this place called New Blue? Oh, yeah, 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 okay. Which is just like really like unassuming. It's kind of like what Williamsburg was way back when. It was just like weird and like really creative and everyone, it was like kind of, there was no posturing it and it wasn't about money. that sort of behavior? I guess so. Yeah. So were there any moments that you've had, have, when was the last moment you've had where you felt people were actually having a good time? And they were there for the music, and it was New York. It's, oh. like, very rare. I mean, I don't have – I don't go – I purposely <laughs> avoid those kind of things, so I'm not really sure. I guess – have I been to a show? I mean, you know what? I went to um, – what do we go? Oh, we went to the um, – oh, shit, what's his name? Oh, David Gilmore. We went to see David Gilmore <laughs> at MSG um, because my wife's friend's dad is, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so um, – that was interesting to me because I don't really care about that at all. But it was all it was only people that don't do this anymore having the time of their lives. So like adults, like our parents, basically loving it and just having the best time. And um, it was nice to see an older person kind of in that environment uh, because that's very rare to come across. People don't really like loot, let their guard down enough. They definitely don't. And I, I was never a guard let downer myself. I, I'm not a dancer. I don't, you know, I don't really do that. Um, but I uh, I think I, it would be better if I did. Let's put it, let me put it that way. I wish I had that in me, but I just don't. Yeah, we had Dapwell from Chillin' Island in here. I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with him. Yeah, I heard you on Chillin' Island. It was great. All right, thank you. It's my favorite show. That was a, uh, that was a crazy. That was kind of a day similar to this. What do you mean? I was coming off alcohol poisoning, <laughs> and I called out of work, and had that interview not went down that day, I would have just been at home like just trying to get better. But I was like, nah, I can't let, I can't miss this. And there was no other guests on the show, so I was like, I know I'm about to get like the solo artwork. Like, I need that. So I remember you said <laughs> you were going to a party at Tijuana Picnic, and you weren't going to drink for like a week. Yes. On the show, you said that on Chillin' Island. Yeah, because I was doing my um, yeah, like my like music video release party at Tijuana Picnic. Um, I dr- I obviously ended up drinking very little. Towards the end of the night, but it's never it never works. Yeah, it's you know. So you are hungover or now? Yeah. No. Oh, okay. No, no, no. Thank, I'm 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 fresh. Like okay, cool. I'm just tired because I was in the studio oh. till 
like three or four last night. But other than that, I'm all right. Cool. So yeah. you've just put out your first single as and video as Get Over Her. Yes. Baby Oil, it's called. Correct. Correct. So how does it feel? It feels good. Um, it's definitely a weight has been lifted off my shoulders creatively, emotionally, personally. Um, I feel uh, I've always wanted to be a soloist up until high school where I went to high school for vocal performance. But then I psyched myself out, experienced some industry things early that scared me off, got way too caught up in my social life chasing these girls, um, especially discovering girls from different boroughs and different ethnicities and different cultures. It was it was it was it was captivating. Um, I, I, I you know I just fell deep into that hole, <laughs> um, and out of high school I just decided to play the background. But I'm happy to be on the forefront again, working with Boy Slash Friend also helped me, uh, you know, get out of my uh, my funk, and um, it's good. I still don't have closure with Shorty that the song is about, but we're kind of working on it. Her and I spoke very briefly since it came out. I don't know if she actually heard it or saw it because she definitely doesn't, you know, feel me enough to <laughs> acknowledge that. But she, we had a brief conversation and she said she's down to meet up to like, I guess have closure or just discuss our past in order to fix our futures with different people since she has moved on, she says. so. If we had a call-in show, maybe we could say, yeah, right. if you're listening out there. Yeah, I know. I know, I know. <laughs> but it's funny that you mention those moments of your past so yes. immediately because talking, listening to Baby Oil, the song, I felt like it's, I mean, it's obvious, it's haunted by your past. Yeah. Um, there's also this kind of like sense of lost innocence. Um, and I would love to know why those moments that you just alluded to growing up in Queens were so formative for you as an artist. Um, well, I do take pride in, it might sound corny, you know, I guess because I'm 30 and I don't know if that makes me a millennial. I guess I'm not a millennial, but I take pride in being from New York where, you know, hip-hop was created, and I grew up on hip-hop, I grew up on R&B, like real true R&B, real true hip-hop. Um, but obviously I'm very hip to what's going on now because I DJ and I'm just that nigga. I just got to know. But it was very important for me to make... My, it was very important for me for my first song to be real, authentic, and garner respect from my peers and my friends and my family. I could have easily put out some club bullshit but based on where I'm from and like what I was raised on family-wise as well as just artists I grew up on and my experiences, I had to do something real, you know. My fam my, my older cousin is, you know, a rapper and he, you know, older dude and you know, he did a lot of good and bad things that I was exposed to that influenced me. And then, you know, growing up on my own, um, I saw music videos obviously by artists that were just incredible, that inspired me, you know, from New York and beyond. And then I actually grew up and got to meet and develop and collaborate with a lot of musicians that I still respect to this day. Um, so, yeah, it was just important for me to have a record, to start with a record that was real and not some fly-by-night bullshit. Um, 
And New York, you know, when I was raised, was is is as authentic as it's gonna get. You know, pre gentrification, you know, pre nine eleven, um, things were, you know, they were raw. Um, it was authentic. You know, what I'm saying like my hat says ninety two. You know, for a reason. I wear I wear a New Balance for a reason. Um, it's just important to me, like just that whole kind of like low head. Um, meet Seinfeld swag, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm from the Burbs, from Queens, you know, real deep, bordering Long Island, but I was lucky enough, my mom's a teacher, she put me in school, uh, in, in multicultural schools from day one, outside of my zone neighborhood, so I grew up with everyone from day one, literally from nursery school. And I think that's definitely shaped how open-minded I am and why my friends are, you know, off the fucking rainbow, and which, and I value that is. I don't even get to travel much, but because my friends are who they are and how street knowledgeable I am um, and how much common sense I have, I feel very well-traveled, very well-cultured, um, very well-educated, even despite not graduating college, which my mom hates because she's a teacher. But um, I'm, an, you know, I'm an observer. Like I pay attention to my surroundings. I read people for a living instead of books. That's just kind of how I roll. You know, I, I, I move off energy. That's That's just me, you know. Um, cool. Yeah. <laughs> if that answers. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned okay. lowheads because we had this guy Brian Procell on the last yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah. Who's like this king of polo vintage throwback stuff. Yeah, Not he's throwback, but yeah, yeah, he's vintage. he's like the vintage Don right yeah. now. Um, very respectable cat. I've hung out with him. We've I, I met him a couple times. He knows me. Um, my homegirl Jane Lies works with him. Shout out to her, who's a mutual friend of boy slash friend and I. Um, our music partner christian aka mountain that's his wifey oh um, cool yeah well, wow it's you know, like a incest ancestral family at point welcome to new york city bro yeah. like but, it's disgusting but it's beautiful so <laughs> until somebody fucks someone you know <laughs> you mentioned uh pre-9-11 yeah uh school there's a couple of things on this in the song that seemed to be about a specific moment when you lost something. Yeah, don't mind uh, my snap. <laughs> no, that's cool. It's a multimedia experience. Right. Snapping in the middle of the pod. Uh, I used to be empowered in the cold concrete of Queens. I used to be a flower. I, lo- I towered over thugs and racist teachers selling pipe dreams till the 25th hour. What, were, what was it about that moment that, you know, inspired you so much and made you feel like you lost something? Um... Hence, growing up in these um, predominantly, you know, mixed but predominantly white, predominantly Jewish uh, schools, um, definitely experienced, you know, a lot of prejudice. Uh, I was always in the gifted classes and the advanced classes, thanks to my mom's, you know, uh, guidance, which is dope. Um, but, you know, not everyone is going to love and admire that. And unfortunately, you know, teachers get paid shit. And now you have these young teachers who I guess are millennials or whatever, you know, they're like 25 and hot. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But when we were, you know, I assume we were around the same age when we were yeah. growing up, you know, your teachers were fucking old. Most of them were old. You had like the one hot teacher, you know what I'm saying, or the one cute teacher, but they were mostly old. And, um, yeah, I just felt, you know, it was a lot of prejudice. Not that I was the perfect student. I definitely acted up 
and did a lot of you know bullshit. But um, you know, I, I you know I felt like hated on by adults that were supposed to be guiding me, but they also weren't even rooting for me or you know kind of like going behind my back talking you know talking shit to other teachers and what have you. But I I gotta admit you know because my mom had the 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 power that she did and the flex that she did. Um, she my mom was a vice principal. You know what I'm saying? My mom has two masters. So, like, that kind of always kept me out of trouble. And, you know, on some, like, board of education shit, PTA shit, my mom kind of had a crown with that. So it's like she still reprimanded me when I actually did shit wrong, but she knew how to get me out of those, like, bullshit jams. And, um, you know, just facing this discrimination with the teachers, other students. Um, and then... Um, I was I was only bullied early elementary school, and it was only, I felt, on the cheese bus. Because my mom used to put me on a private bus for most of elementary school, but there was, like, one or two years where maybe we couldn't. She wanted to save money or something like that, and I took, like, the general cheese bus. And it was with, like, the local degenerates. Some were cool, some were high, some were shitty. And, like, back then it was all about snaps, like... And I don't even mean snaps like Snapchat. Now it was literally about like <laughs> yeah. cracking jokes on whoever had the wackest gear, you know, or just had some kind of physical thing or, you know, mental disorder you couldn't even help. And, you know, kids would just get at you about that shit. And you had to be thick skinned, you had to be quick witted. Um, you know, obviously fights and stuff like that. There was a point, you know, and I didn't have a father growing up either, a single parent, only child household. So I literally had to learn by watching people how to maneuver, like, learning people's behavior, like, all right, this type of person is bigger than me, maybe smarter than me or whatever, and can talk louder than me and overpower me, so this isn't the type of person you want to initiate something with. Or this person's smaller than me, this is the type of person I could flex on and get that, you know, that street cred in the moment in the circle, you know what I'm saying, shit right. like bullshit like that, you know, this, that, that schoolyard bullshit and that schoolyard mentality. Um and then, you know, a couple people around the way, like, I was different. You know, I was dyeing my hair. I was wearing chains. I was skating um, back when that shit was not cool for a black dude to do. Now it's, you know, every black kid in the hood has dyed hair and can play rock and roll, you know what I'm saying, do whatever yeah. the fuck they want. And obviously, you know, Pharrell Williams and other people um, changed that, which is awesome. But I felt very ostracized for being kind of ahead of the curve or just being free at a young age. At, you know, just at an early time. Um, but those things helped me because that's what always made me uh, advance in terms of my taste and, um, you know, just having an, an eye for talent and being aware of culture and being open-minded, which a lot of people aren't. Um, and I think a lot of ignorant people were threatened by that in me. And, of course, you know, they're always going to pick on who's a little different. But, like I said, that was early. I became, like, you know... If not the number one dude, the number two dude, if not number three dude, you know, all through elementary, once I just really honed in on my own social cliques in junior high and high school, like, you know, I, w I was never a herb. It was never that. It was just, I was, you know, when you're in second grade and there's a sixth grader, what are you going to, you know, what are you going to do? Like, <laughs> so what does that, uh, uh, that feeling of being ostracized have to do with? the feeling of losing an ex. Why connect those two together for the song Baby O? Because obviously the song is also about yeah. losing an ex. Uh, What's behind that? What was the, why was that moment of your, of looking back at your childhood, how did that lead into the moment of, of uh, losing this 
Well, the girl my ex said us about, she grew up she grew up in the neighborhood I went to school in. Uh that I went to elementary and junior high school in. And when I met her, she's younger than me, but when I met her, I was just instantly aesthetically pleased. Um I didn't know her too well, but I just knew what she looked like and I knew who she was by day and I was like, God damn, like you know what I'm saying? And <laughs> I felt at the time in junior high school, just dark skinned niggas weren't in. Like, it was all up, like, where, where I school, it was all about Spanish dudes. Like, you had, like, light skinned Spanish dudes, that's it. Uh, you know, who poor skinny and played handball and, you know, probably sold weed or something and, you know, whatever. And were probably already fucking by age 13 type shit, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> but when you, and you know, dress baggy, you know, have a very certain lifestyle, certain aesthetic. And it's, I'm not going to even knock any of that, but because it's still New York to me and that's authentic to me. But I was different. I, obviously, I'm short, um, you know, um, dark skin. I was coming through, you know, gap head to toe, Tommy Hilfiger head to toe, a little low if I was lucky. Um, you know what I'm saying? I, I came through very like preppy, chic, you know what I'm saying? Um, and. Only certain few people could kind of see what the I guess the value in me and like you know I, I always there was always a girl I always I had a girlfriend but I guess in junior high I always felt like casted out I was like damn like I know I'm flyer than all of you I know I'm smarter than all of you can't wait to get the fuck out of here why can't the hottest girl in the school realize that either but I am appreciative for you know the two or three girls that I did have at the time throughout those years. Um, so I guess, yeah, I guess being ostracized is a part of embarrassment and part of, like, growing pains and, like, losing this girl who's a part of that time. Like, she's attached to that that part of time for me. It's very symbolic because one of the things, one of the issues I've always had with her was why didn't you like me when I, like, when I liked you? Like, why wasn't it love at first sight? And unfortunately... Um, you know, people are just who they are, but it just happened to be that, like I said, I felt like I wasn't in style. She wasn't into me at the time. My best friend from high school ended up taking her virginity. That definitely was a blow to my ego because I, I introduced them. Then I had to witness that. And then... That shit happens in high school. Yeah, exactly. Only. Yeah, it just, it just was what it was. <laughs> um, And then her and I didn't get together until years later after high school, like after oh, she graduated. Okay college and like we were seeing each other while she was like in college we started like dating i guess when she would come back to the city i even like you know had to creep on a a couple girlfriends at the time to go see her and like you know spend that spend that bread just to make it pop just to have that opportunity you know what i'm saying um because that's what you do but i always i guess resented her in a way because once she fell for me I just felt like I was like, yo, like it's ill, but like what what was wrong with me ten years ago or whatever, you know, whatever five years ago. Like I knew I wanted you then. Why didn't you want me now? And I guess I always felt I guess it you know, kind of affected my self esteem or felt embarrassing and I guess that's the connection I I put there, like like with that time of like me really being developmental and trying to figure those things out. Things that like I know for a fact now I would never do again or I know how to cope with them, but back then it was just like things felt like the end of the world. Right. You know. So, what I mean? so speaking of that time and and developing, um, 
What about musically? Can you take me a, a little bit of uh, you know along your musical path and the the moments along along the way that got you to where you are now? I know you played recently at Coon Room with Spank Rock, who actually a, a, you wrote in, on your gram some stuff about you know you wrote first ratchet MC that truly introduced me to aggressive yet sexy club music. Been a fan <laughs> since since high school. I remember when I started DJing. I was actually in college when Spank Rock was. Okay. Um, I think I might have been a freshman. Remember when that one, yo, 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 that mm-hmm, album. Mm-hmm. And, and like he was like formative in that whole scene around him for when I started DJing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, what was it about that moment and that scene in music that set you on your path to, you know, industry work or eventually to, uh, you know, work as an artist? Um, once I got out of high school, I still didn't have a computer. So once I got into nightlife, I was just introduced to a bunch of shit and fucking with like A Ron Don and Roxy Cottontail. Um, you know, admiring these like downtown New York legends, you know, sneaking into these events. Um I just got exposed to so much music and then um, you know, you got I got to see a lot of the people that are so prominent in like kind of like mainstream New York you know, uh, culture, I got to see them develop, uh, like a Vashti, um, you know, uh, the, the dudes from Peg Lake, Harry McNally and Greg Passantino and, um, Haley Wallens. Um, yeah, like those are, those are people I just really admired in high school and then right after high school. And, um, cause they were from the city or at least we're a little older, or, like, we're in downtown New York already. I wasn't introduced to downtown Manhattan until high school. And I met a homie who who's from Chelsea, and I used to kick it, you know, kick it at his house all the time. And then that's when I started saying, like, yo, like, this is what it's about. Like, we in the city right now. You know, the women are different. The air is different. The weed is different. The, the, the you know, the, 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 the parties are different. Um, and... I always talk about this, like, Club Row and Chelsea, millennials don't know about this shit, but Club Row and Chelsea used to be a thing, a big deal. That's where you went. That's where you wanted to go to, to party. And these were, it was basically like a whole strip of mega clubs in Chelsea where, like, we all thought, you know, was it was just the fly shit to be. And, you know, Club Bed, Club Home, uh, Kane, uh, Bungalow 8, uh... Marquis still there to this day, um, and Club Stereo. And Club Stereo was my shit. Like, that's... I blacked out drunk there so many times before I was 21. Had so many good times there. Um, and that's when I remember just first hearing Spank Rock. Um, um, what's the song called? Uh, Put That Pussy On yeah. Me. And that shit changed me. I was like, yo, like, what the fuck is this? Like... It's upbeat. It was a you know, this is Snoop Dogg dropping like his hot sample, but sped up. He's rapping fast, he's talking fly shit. Like it was, you know, like ambiguous but or androgynous, but still hood. Like he, like Spank Rock, he was just ahead of his time and he had that cover of Fader for a reason. And once I I started asking around and, you know, I figured out what the song was. Still didn't have a computer, but you know, just figured it out. I just was like, wow, and then Finding out, you know, I started becoming friends with people he knew, and then, you know, I'm chilling that sway with Roxy, and then he's there, and you know what I'm saying? Like, I just got to see it very early on, and it was just inspiring. Like, 
because I just love everything. And for me, it was always about the mix of things. Like, I'm a soulful cat. I love R&B, but I also like hip-hop, so I like hood shit. But I also like to dance. I like upbeat shit. And someone like him knows how to put those things together in one package and make it and make it work. Not everyone can do that, and that's something I'm 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 working on with get over her um or and and even with voice slash friend like um I think you know club music is very important right now. Yeah. Um, I think the, just to clarify so boy slash friend he was on the last episode yes, yes. a point he's your <laughs> friend <laughs> he's, and... one, he's he's one of my best friends uh, uh I happen to manage him. Okay, cool. Um and we also uh, songwrite together, right? Um, and he's on some of your tracks, and vice versa. Uh, and vice versa, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've co-written a, a handful of his solo material, um, and obviously he's written his own stuff too. It's not, you know, yeah. it's not like me behind the scenes only. Uh, it's just, you know, how songwriting is. Some, you know, fucking party next door wrote work for Drake and Rihanna. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, we just um, we we share a love, a deep passion for R and B. Like we're like R and B aficionados, like real R and B. I'm not talking about the fucking weekend. You know what I'm saying? I'm talking about you can see it in your um, immature shirt. Exact, exactly. <laughs> like I grew in up the on, video. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. There's a story behind that I shirt saw, too. He so oh, I, I read the gram. I'll let yeah. you tell the story. Yeah. OJ from La Petite Moore was actually on this show too. Oh, dope. Yeah, dope. So, yeah, he's he's another one. Like I yeah. grew up seeing him in the clubs. And he ran, you know, with dances with white girls yeah. and um, the, the peg leg heads. And yeah. me and him, it was like we were never close, but we had a mutual respect because we knew each other's faces and we always saw each other at the right places. And that's kind of what I loved about New York Nightlife, too, was like there was that respect. You know what I'm saying? Like you just the right people were at the at, at the right spots at the right time. Um, but, yes, Slutless. I got my immature T-shirt from La Petite Mort the day I shot the video for Baby Oil. I happened to be in LES that day prior to the shoot, which was that evening, just strolling, never even been to the store, saw the store, go in because I think we saw some Baron Von Fancy shit in the window, go in, looking around, whatever. I don't even like to shop because I ain't got bread. Like, I'm not buying nothing. Um, but I happened to be in there. I was with Boy Slash. He's a fucking shopper. We walk in and I'm looking. I don't know if he found the immature shirt or I did, but it was a it was a moment. Like it was like yo, like <laughs> like we you know like it was one of those. And I was like yo, I need this shirt. Like I'm shooting my video tonight. I reference immature by each group member's name in my song. I need this shirt. They give me the price. I'm like it's steep as fuck, but. I left the store, had a had a think, <laughs> took a lap, came back. I was like, nah, nigga, like, come on, like, YOLO, like, I copped it. I was like, you know what I'm saying? Like, what? Like, why not? Like, this means it's the universe. Like, it means something. Copped it. Obviously, I still have it. Ward in the video. Um, I would love Marcus Houston to fucking acknowledge me on social media, but <laughs> I've like tried to tag him <laughs> a couple times, but he doesn't. Um, but nah, yeah, like I'm, I'm. I, that's why I grew up watching the box, watching video music box, watching video soul, watching rap city, watching midnight love. Um, you can hear it. Yeah, yeah. So um, why don't we get? I would love to, you know, so much about your persona 
your song and um, you know the name that you've chosen is it actually about getting over the past? It's exactly about getting over the past, <laughs> getting over all these hoes, getting over all these good girls that I fucked over, um, and then also get over here, which is scorpions. Hell yeah! You know, uh, that's my language. Yeah, that that's like his Mortal Kombat. Exactly, Mortal Kombat, which I grew up playing, and I'm also a Scorpio, which you know scares a lot of people off. So, how was the moment? present moment you know important in helping you get over the past um it's vital because i'm you know self-discovery i'm still trying to learn how to love myself wholly and completely it's a fucking journey it never ends and one of the things i've realized is um you have to live in the moment and you have to appreciate what you have i think i've definitely been guilty of a lot of jealousy and envy and and always wanting the next best thing, always wanting more and always, you know, wanting what the next man has. Um, but I realized, like, you know, I'm privileged in a sense where I have so much already at base. I have what I need. And if you have what you need, you're good. You know what I mean? Um, and those are things I, I literally have to sometimes stop myself in the moment and then have a conversation with myself and be like, yo, you're good. Like, you don't need that or you don't need to do that or, you know what I'm saying? Just like, it's all good. Like, you don't need to feel this way. Um, you're you're blessed, you know what I'm saying? Not that I'm religious, but blessed in a sense, like like I said, privileged. And I'm living life. Like, I'm breathing. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm thankfully not starving. I thankfully have a roof over my head. Over my head, I thankfully have friends and family that care. Um, and I, you know, you know, growing up in New York in this internet age, you know, it's, it's, you get caught up. I get caught up. I see, you know, I'm a, especially in the entertainment business. Like, there's so much uh, bullshit, and it's hard to ignore it. It's hard to filter it out. But that's kind of what I do. Like, people sometimes I think see, they're like, oh, like you follow so many people on social media, and I'm like, yeah, that's my job. Like, I want to know everything that's going on. But I'm very well at filtering out the bullshit. Hence, like I said, like my first song, as much as as popular as other shit and other trends are out there, I was like, my my first song will not be that. I might have some things moving forward that are influenced by that and have tastes of what's going on right now. But I'm very aware of and, and constantly trying to be more aware of my roots, my past and where I came from and, where you know, to get where I'm going. It's not just about right now, right now for me. You know, it's about past, present, and future. Point. 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 And you're from the city. Yeah, I grew up in, in Manhattan. Upper West? Upper West. Cool, like Adam. Or he's from the Upper East. Yeah. Um, okay, so you're touring? I'm just about to start touring with my band. Dave Harrington Group. Correct, for the first time. We're doing, uh, we just did our release shows, and which were in, in Brooklyn. And at the end of May, 
beginning of June, we do our first trip to Europe. Damn. Yeah. Where are you going? London, Copenhagen, Belgrade, and a festival in Paris. And then maybe one or two other dates, TBD. Nice. So this is debut of the debut album of the Dave Harrington Group, Become Alive. Correct. And I want to track a little bit just because I think most people are probably not as up to speed on the all the, the galaxy of projects that you have. <laughs> right on. Um, but we talked a little bit about growing up in New York, and I know you took bass, jazz bass in high school. Mm-hmm. I t- played jazz guitar right in high on. school. <laughs> I think you probably were a little better, to say the least. <laughs> Hard to say. I fucking sucked. I completely quit. Um, <laughs> but like, I want to start with jazz because I'm trying to track all eventually up to this moment that I had recently sure. with, your, with you DJing. Um, you know, what... You started playing jazz. I know that you um, you had a little bit of like a, a training in much more like out jazz, right? Like In a way. I mean, yeah, it was like, I think it's one of those things where you just end up, or my experience at least was, you know, you end up being formed by the teachers you have and also by the, the music you go and see. And so for me, that ended up, there ended up being a kind of an overlap and a sense of, in a way, like, New Yorkness about that because I grew up in New York, and I, starting when I was maybe 12 or 13, up until the end, when I graduated high school, I was going to the Harlem School of the Arts um, two or three days a week, sometimes more, and then usually five days a week in the summer to um, take private lessons and to play in the jazz band take music theory, take composition. And so long way around, what the, what what happens in New York is that it's one of the it's like there are a ton of jazz musicians who live yeah. here and, you know, much like myself, they go to Europe <laughs> and much like myself now, they you got to go to Europe to tour, but then you're around the city cuz it's part it's where the community is. And so the people that I and a lot of those guys end up teaching. And so the people that were my teachers and mentors people who came out of and were actively a, a part of the New York contemporary jazz world. Right, which is defined by, like, John Zorn types and really out there. Kind yeah. Of. I know Mark Rebo is it re- involved a little bit with Harlem, isn't he? Uh, well, or some it of wasn't his, Mark his... Rebo. It was, it was um, uh, my base, yeah, my base yeah. teacher was Brad Jones, right. who played in um, Mark Rebano's Cubanos Postizos band, right. which I love those records are some of my still to this day some of my favorite records um and you know but brad also was you know has played with ornette coleman and dave douglas and all of these you know incredible iconic musicians jazz passengers you know like which is a collective that he was a part of like you know and i was at the same time you know going up to harlem for lessons and also the other you know another one of the main players in my life at the time was this was Kelvin Bell who was a guitar player but he was the director of the jazz ensemble and so he I kind of learned technique from Brad and then I learned context from Mr. Bell context being like how to be a bass player in an ensemble so twice a week I'd go up there and we'd have two or three hour rehearsals of the jazz ensemble or the jazz big band that fluctuated from being like a 20-piece big band to a 12-piece you know large band depending on just who was around and what kind of instruments people were you know who was studying who was part of that community there at the school so that's a a whole you know being a bass player as, as well that's like 
that's a big part of the job, you know, as a horn player or whatever, like a lot is like you, there's, there's a differentiation of like, you have, there's a lot of work you, you have to do on your own versus in order to really kind of get there as a bass player, it really is about working in context. You know, you can stay at home and practice your walking bass lines until you're, you know, blue in the face. But in the end, like until you're vibing with a drummer, listening to a soloist, trying to accompany people, you know, blending in with a band, knowing when to go high and when to go low, like the simple things are the most important parts. So I learned a lot from that as well. It sounds like there's a thread there between you know what you learned in in growing up in as musically context with a lot of the stuff that you have done now. When it sounds you know interaction between either recorded sounds or your your collaborators feels to me to be like that core tension that you really kind of play with i think so yeah i think you know i think growing up as a bass player makes you or certainly made me feel like the core principle of music making is interaction it's working with people it's collaborating it's being part of a moment because that's where the that's where the excitement is when you're playing the bass it's like the feeling of driving a band you know and like interacting with everything around you it's not being in the front necessarily so i think that, that has been something that's stayed with me all throughout where that's kind of wrapped up in how i define or how i experience making music yeah i want to get a little bit quickly soon to like all the different threads that you have the, the threads um you know tentacles kind of that you have going because <laughs> i think that is you can hear it but I want to stay on one thing really quick that a moment, the excitement of that moment that you mentioned is when did improv become part of your teaching? Because Ornette, you know, all this stuff you're meant, you're, you're, you're name checking, clearly improvisation is a big part of that. But it sounds like you were trained in, in pretty, you know, straightforward uh, ensemble playing. Yeah, but, you know, I, I, I decided at a pretty young age that I was not very good in the orchestra. And it wasn't exciting for me. <laughs> so I my all of my musical education, like I'm not classically trained, you know, and like I'm a I'm an okay sight reader at this point, but like, you know, all of my musical education was in the context of jazz. And right. that means that it is inherently in the context of improvisation. That's right. just how I was that's just what I was taught. That was what I elected for myself as like this is what is exciting for me as a, right. as a musician and this that was where my education came from so what were the some of those formative records on you at at that stage at that at that time i was um i was really into the kind of the tonic john zorn downtown old knitting factory nexus of genres mixing together and the and also the being a a high schooler who also liked being in rock bands and going to rock shows and it being the early 2000s I was also like into the kind of way that that world kind of cross-sected with um, the jam world of that era (laughs) so like for me like you know who did I see more than anyone else like Medeski Martin and Woods you know like going to see Medeski Martin and Wood you know every year at the Beacon Theater you know and whenever they would play benefits at Tonic when they were trying to save Tonic and but also, you know, so that was in a way an entry point. And, like, the, the Mark Rebo Cubanos Postizos, you know, Mark Rebo is a great example of that. And, like, that being a band that was 
deeply musical and in a, its own way kind of experimental, but also fun, really just deeply fun to go see. And so I really liked that mix of kind of, I don't know at what point I got into the more experimental side of that world, but I think that that world, what was so exciting about being able to go to those shows when I was in high school was that, you know, I could go to Tonic on a week on a weekend night to see like Sex Mob or Millennial Territory Orchestra, like a Steve Bernstein project. Because that those kinds of those were the first things that attracted me to going to see some of that headier music because there was a groove element and there was a populist element, but it was always folded in with free jazz and some and an element of wild experimentation. So I'd go to see Millennial Territory Orchestra say they'd be playing at midnight on tonic on a Friday and get there early and hang out and I'd end up seeing Michael Blake trio with Ben Allison and Ben Prowski or something, you know, something that was much more in a, in a jazz tradition, you know, or you'd end up seeing um, more experimental things because that it was a fluid kind of community of all of that music happening at the same time and, you know, going to see, you know, Electric Masada, going to see Masada, seeing yeah. John Zorn wow. at Tonic. Like, I went to some of the shows that were, like, during his 50th birthday celebration when he took over Tonic for a month, you know, me and some of my musician friends would go we went to a couple of those shows and you know being in those in those shows where it's like really like really live far out music like and i mean live like present like you're watching it kind of come together and but then but the shows were packed and really intense you know those are like those are formative things for me I rem- in fact, I was growing up at the exact same time. I think we might be pretty much the same age. Mm-hmm. I was in a very different setting than not not the, not Manhattan, but uh, it wasn't that different. I shouldn't whatever. <laughs> uh, but I remember Medeski Martin and Wood, the Tonic album, the acoustic one. Yeah, because I was really into that yeah. world, but not. I think I flirted with uh, like the hardcore downtown yeah. jazz stuff, sure. but I think I was really coming at it from like the jam thing, unfortunately. I think it was. I always thought it was really cool, and I still think it's really cool the way that those worlds intersect. Yeah, you know, and it happens, and it's changed since then. That was a, like kind of a long time it's ago. True, and, and but they, yeah, but you know, I, how cool to be able to go see, like during that era, that like going to the Beacon Theater, and you could see like. Phil and Friends, and then also at the Beacon Theater, Medeski Martin and Wood. Yeah. You know, like, and sometimes they're playing. It and together. sometimes yeah. together. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I always thought that was. I like. I just. I have a, a like a predisposition towards liking that kind of, um, eclecticism. It's just kind of like it's just. I find it exciting. You know, like I always like hearing the stories about like, when, Charles Lloyd or Miles Davis opens for you know. Yeah. The doors at yeah. you know at the Fillmore or something you know like that kind of stuff is always to me that's like I don't know I can't I'm still figuring out why but I know that that the idea of those kinds of you know seemingly different musical cultures bumping up against each other and then the idea that an audience would embrace that it's very exciting to me yeah I mean I think you can probably hear it in what you're doing now which I'd love to transition to it's funny you mentioned we went directly back to a moment in the 2000s this is a little earlier than so jason aka this he's a rapper named get over her he's also been like an a and r he we interviewed him he's gonna he's gonna be on the episode here with you nice. um 
he went right back. We went back to this moment where he, his formative New York City musical live moment, but it was a little later and it was like all about spank rock and like Diplo and all that kind of wow, like. cool. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when like blogs were kind of turning electro and house remixes into this sort of subculture. But yeah. it's funny. We went right back to, his, to a time when I also shared with you because I shared that one with him. Mm-hmm. Different times, really different eras in my moments in my life but sure um so you mentioned that like live feeling and what live means you know uh, really being present and like fucking with an audience really like kind of bringing them along and and i think reacting with them which is obviously something that's like deeply rooted in the you know being a a jazz musician uh did you expect that this jam jazz like kind of improv hardcore downtown avant-garde like upbringing that you had musically would would eventually come back so strong as it is now because you went through like a synth pop and indie rock period yeah i mean i think that like yeah it's funny that i never i've never thought about any of this stuff very calculatingly you know because to me ultimately beyond the genre trappings what is still really exciting to me is the having the having multiple worlds kind of happening at once and you know being part of trying trying to be part of and engage with different musical communities and seeing how they interact and and so you know when i finished college and i moved back to the city and i started playing i where my community kind of ended up and the friends that i had and the people who were wanting me to play with them it wasn't that musical world it was more of an indie rock thing it was but it was also like you know a time where I like I had an like a I had another project of mine called El Topo and like we did I remember like one of the most which was kind of like rooted had a jazz element but it was also this that band is also kind of like a little heavier and it's it's more composed and less just pure less less lead less driven by the improvisation um but an instrumental you know, experimental or whatever kind of band. Anyway, one of my, like, fondest memories of a show that that band ever played was when we opened for Liturgy, when Liturgy was just kind of, like, really just starting to kind of explode. And I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever been a part of. Yeah. Like, I'm playing in a band with two... I'm, like, leading my band, playing bass with these with two drummers and a sax player, and, and Liturgy's up next. And I was like this is the thing, you know? And so, you know, in the same, and it was the same way when I would go and like when I was in, you know, more kind of conventional song type bands, you know, bands that drew on either kind of indie synth pop or the kind of garage uh, inheriting of the kind of New York vibe, um, the like post CBGB Velvet Underground, yeah. whatever that tree is, you know, I was played in a band like that for a while. But we'd end up on bills and it would be like, I did like I liked the feeling I was getting playing in these some of the same venues that some of that have closed but some that are still around the same kind of communities in Brooklyn now where it's like the musics are different but the open mindedness is is there in a way and that's always I think been important to me. So it sounds like that open mindedness also drove you into where you are now because so you're playing in a synth pop band you still at this point are not playing guitar. No. So. You start collaborating with this electron. I mean, I'm not going to tell a story for you. Yeah. But, you know, someone's like, you want to jam with this kid? He's from Germany. 
He's from. I mean, he's, he's from New York. Right. He's kind of. He's from Chile. He's from Chile, he's all over. He's from New York. No, we're but, talking about you. You, you want to? Yeah. Well, and and that was yeah. Well, when my good friend Will is he French? Why are they German? He's a he, um because he speaks French. Okay. Um and he speaks Spanish. Um. When my good friend Will Epstein asked me, "Do you want to play with my friend Nico?" He has an album coming out, and I think that he's like talking about booking shows in Europe. And I was like, that sounds like a good time. I've never gone to Europe for a show a tour before. Um, I was like, yeah, of course I'm going to say yes to this. He was like, and Will was like, he wants you to play guitar. And I was like, okay. I mean, I still know my way around the guitar from, you know, a long time ago. And it's not that different from a bass. Let's see. And then and I, when I started playing with him, it was like, in a way, that was a moment where, from the beginning of working with Nico, he was operating in the kind of the logic of the... He was looking at music, I think, in the same way, not to speak for him, but looking at live performance and music in a, in a way that was very much related to everything we're talking about in terms of downtown New York, jazz. Yeah. You know, it was like that was a time where I had been in much more song-driven projects. And then from the first rehearsal with Nico, it was like there are no parts. There are no, you know, there's just a vibe. There's like this piece is at this tempo and it this happens and then it changes keys and then like let's figure it out and it was very much improvisatory from the beginning so from like the first like jam session audition I had with Nico I was like oh this is like this is that whole other thing that I love that I haven't really been doing that much of lately so it was like kind of the beginning of a, a bit of a shift back you know looping back around it sounds like just hearing it now because I was I was I'm like if that's the impetus for all the stuff you're doing now, all the many different things that you have, which I want to get finally take the listeners through, but it sounds like that kind of like controlling of improvisation or like manipulating of yeah. improvisation is something that I can track through at least some of the stuff that you do. Yeah, I think it's an idea about like you know curating an environment, a particular musical environment, whether that's with the ideas, and that's very much what Nico was doing, and that's um, that's really kind of how I've approached um, my different projects and bands since then, um, and it was kind of what I had been doing with my like party band in college, you know, but not thinking that that was necessarily a trajectory or like there was a space for that when I moved back to New York, and it's yeah, it's really whether that's with it's I think the I, I would use the word curating because it's it's a mix of you know, a certain set of musical concepts and then the people you surround yourself with and then letting it, letting those things influence each other, bringing people in and being like, these are the things that I'm interested in. This is the vibe. This is, you know, this kind of set of restrictions maybe, but then seeing how interesting individual musicians work inside of that context. Right. You can almost like hear you physically manipulating the context and the vibe you know like you like bend it in like if, if yeah. it's not there you could like and i think that you know well for actually uh, one thing i would start with is dave harrington group which you which is the album you just released mm -hmm. but like i heard it when i saw you do no country for old men so you you and your group mm -hmm. is it it's the same band it's uh, i work with the same okay. community of guys right so a lot most of the people um we had a guest percussionist that night who isn't playing with me right now but I go way back to 
Providence with him. You know, right. so it's it's a community of all the same musicians. So you played a live score to a movie in Cameo on a Sunday night. They're playing the movie. It's silent. It's a movie that should be silent anyway, almost right. in a lot of ways. <laughs> Yeah. And so there's the structure of the movie, and right. there's this living, breathing organism, which is your band, and it swells and it's droning, and it's, mm-hmm. so you're constantly moving it back in yeah. to the structure of the of the movie. Um, there's your remix stuff, which I also saw you play at Cameo. You're, you have 12 days of remixes yeah. on your SoundCloud. I have actually been meaning to ask you about this stuff because it's like, to me, so you got the structure of the original song, but you're kind of. It sounds to me like you first then manipulate them into remixes, but then you almost, you manipulate them again live based off of the audience, you know, the room. Like 100%. A DJ. Yeah. It was crazy good. And, and dude, because <laughs> it sounded like fish. And it's funny that we're talking about. Um, well, one of my, one of, I know, there's an edit blue. in there that's of, a Vita Blue edit I know, that I made. Which is Paige McConnell's band. Which is Paige McConnell's side project. And at the right moment, that song can kill in a DJ set, yeah. which doesn't really make a lot of sense. Just no. abstractly, but Fight of Blue is a really funky band, so I guess it makes sense that that so exists you've got, on the dance yeah, floor. You've got this sort of, um, you know, droning instrumental score, like sound, you know, however you describe Dave Harrington Group. Mm-hmm. You've got this like jam DJ set lane. Yeah. Then you've got Dark Side, which is what you just described the the embryonic stages of when yeah. you and Nico met. And in that, obviously, I mean, that's like you can hear you like almost like physically bending. These sounds into this like, you know, hole. Um, I guess and I, I remember in, that, in this NPR interview you just did. I, re- I really liked that 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 you said the feeling of my hands on things. Mm-hmm. Like you, that's something that you try to get the audience to to actually hear. Um, I guess my question is like, does this ring true as something that's connecting all these things together? I if if it rings true for you, then it <laughs> rings true for me. I mean, I I I'm not. I don't. I guess I haven't thought about it like actively aggressively like trying to draw lines amongst these things but these are these are the things that I am interested in these are the things that I spend my time doing that I gravitate towards naturally you know nobody was telling me to make all of these remix nobody right. you know, I just like I just the remixes um I think that they do come to it does come together to be serious for a sec in in so far as you know coming out of by Coming out of working with Nico, I ended up, you know, being a part of this electronic community. And so I was like, well, this is a really interesting musical world. I want to go deeper. I want to be I want to be a contributing member of this community. I want to understand how it works and I want to be a part of it. It's exciting. You know, spending, a, you know, that first summer we spent on tour um, when we were when me and Will and our friend Ian were playing in Nico's solo band. You know, I was getting to hear. You know, people like, you know, Wolf and Lamb, Soul Clap, Ben Juan Sergio, Carl Craig, you know, like all the time, right up close, watching them play, watching the crowd react. And that's a vibrant, exciting world to be involved in. And I was like, I want to be part of this. I want to be more in here. So I started DJing. And then me as a DJ was like a process of what, do I want to do here? And what I've kind of settled on or where I'm at right now is I want to figure out a way to drop Vita Blue at peak hour and make it happen. And so the remixes come out of that a kind of, an almost utilitarian function because I think that, you know, that's what I want to 
bring to the table as a DJ. So I make the edits and the remixes so that I specifically so that I can play them. So all of that stuff that I put out at the end of last year was stuff that I'd been using in my DJ sets for the better part of two years. And whenever I hear something and I'm like, this with a little more of this and that section looped and some new percussion and some extra bass, that could work on the at the right time. That's when I go and I turn it into an edit, you know? And so I slowly accrue those things and they rep you you know, they kind of represent what I was, you know, into and curious about and listening over the course of figuring out what I wanted to do as a DJ. So you get things like Vita Blue and you get things like Paul Simon or, you know, Beyonce when I'm like, oh, right now it's a funky Beyonce track, like that could get in there, you know? Yeah, man. I mean the moment when you hear that like Vita Blue thing and the in in like a, being at that a cameo was like insane. I was like, this is fish. What is <laughs> yeah. going on? It's the weirdest yeah. thing ever. And it's like all these you know, people are uh, one of the things I love about the shows that you know I've been to years is like the people there for the music, which it actually shares a lot with the jam band culture a little bit. I yeah, think. yeah, totally. People are like really into the music. Yeah, you know. So okay, so the, I want to. You just mentioned like taking a song really that you just want to from one world and p- playing it for another world. Yeah. In their setting. So you've got electronic music fans and you've got this like jam song <laughs> yeah. and you or Beyonce or whatever and you yeah. feel like they, they could match but you need to like kind of manipulate them to get to that moment because you can't just like drop it for these people. They'd be like, what the fuck's going on? Yeah. So coming full circle to the jazz upbringing, um, I really want to talk about this moment that I had at Boiler Room, your set. Yeah. So you curated a night at Boiler Room at New Blue, which is like, it was amazing. Just, I mean, that, that's, thank you. That's also just like, yeah, I mean. It was that's, perfect. That's just my one of my favorite places to play in the city. Well, a place that I was also going to, you know, when I was a, when right. I was a kid, sneaking into and stuff. And, like, I have, feel so lucky that they've welcomed me into their community, too, and that I'm friends with those folks and that they let me play and that they were supportive and wanted to do the Boiler Room there and got excited about it. I mean, a lot of that, to me, uh, whatever I think went a lot of whatever went well that night um, was because New Blue is such a special place and the people who run it just have the best vibe. I have to say I walked in and I was instantly like, holy shit, this is like the best night I'm going to have. <laughs> Seriously, it was like one of those nights that like reminded me like that New York has like shit going on. You just need to like get go out just for a get little in bit. There. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, people were like first. So so walked in. The, I never gonna remember Turkish, the first DJs. Oh, um, Istanbul seventy. Istanbul, right? Memos and Wygun. <laughs> Is that their names? Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Those so they're guys playing are the like, best. So they're playing like Turk, like wild Turkish house. Yeah. And like people are first, that is sounds weird. It's not. It's like the most pleasant. It actually kind of sounds like the Fish remix. Like it's just happy oh, yeah. major key. I'm definitely me and those guys are kindred spirits. Yeah. Like what I love what they do. <laughs> so that's playing, and um, people are like fucking having a great time. The place is like very weird. It reminded me of like Williamsburg, like maybe eight years ago, a little totally. bit. Um, Everyone's smiling, dancing, just watching, really there for the music and not like one of the, it wasn't like that vibe where it's like everyone looks at the person who walks in, you know, it yeah. wasn't like just to be there, totally. to be there thing. And then your set comes and basically you took, I need to know what you did because I don't understand it really. I heard a lot of things I recognize. We talked a little bit about one song on the way in, but 
you it sounded like there was a lot of ECM jazz, which is a record label, mm-hmm. a German record label from like the seventies and 80s that had like all these crates on it, but it's really not like it's not straight ahead jazz in any way. No, it's it's not. It's um it's you know, yeah, I think I forget when they first started putting out records, but they always put out a mix of um contemporary classical, free improvisation, and then uh, you know, I mean, and then different strains of jazz that emerged in, starting in the sometime in the seventies that are, you know, things that, you know, there is some straight ahead jazz to be had there, but it's people like Pat Metheny, Gary Burton, uh, Keith Jarrett, Keith Jarrett, right. you know, where they're really individual voices that are kind of taking the, you know, the, the toolbox of jazz, but using it to their own right. Ends. So what? How did you get from loving these records? I'm assuming for a long time. Yeah. To making a DJ set out of it for because Boiler Room is like this international like electronic music like brand where people go to these parties that are branded Boiler Room. Yeah. To hear e- electronic music. So you like fucking Trojan horse them with this like <laughs> insane, <laughs> insane avant-garde jazz. Yeah. Well, my thinking was was kind of twofold. On the one hand. What I actually, um, on the one hand, the thing that I always think is fascinating about Boiler Room, and I really like, like, I enjoy, like, watching those things, like, going back to the archives, because, you know, you get to, it's like being in, you know, the way that they shoot it is kind of like being in the DJ booth, so right. it's really interesting to see people, see people working, you know, it's part of the thrill of it, and then also just to listen to what, you know, your favorite DJs are spinning, and just, it's just right there, it's a great resource and archive. But the thing that's interesting about it for me is that, you know, sometimes I imagine, I don't know how everyone consumes it, sometimes, you know, it'd be a great thing to just turn on a boiler room at a party and then walk away and then you've, you're, you've got a party transported into your house party, you know? Right. But the other thing that's really interesting to me about it as a medium is it's a watching and listening medium. And it's not, ne- because it exists on YouTube, a lot of the people end on their own archive or whatever it's not necessarily it's not exclusively for dancing even though what they a lot of what they are purveyors of is dance music so i liked the idea that wow a lot of this you know a lot of the people who are who watch boiler room listen to boiler room they're just watching and listening so what would i want to watch and listen to from a dj you know kind of like come at it from a slightly different angle and not worry so much about the party in the room because that's just kind of the starting point it's not you know and then where it goes is into people's homes whenever they want to listen to it and deal with it so that was kind of my initial thinking and then after mulling that over for a little while what i decided i wanted to do was to do something i had never done before which was to basically do a dj set where i applied some version of the kinds of production techniques and manipulation techniques that I use in the studio and that I use live when I'm on my guitar on these jazz vinyl records. Yeah. So what I was doing was I had the two turntables and the mixer, just like any good DJ, and then on the other side of me I had this table filled with all of the gear that I use to kind of get my sound, whatever that means. Stuff that I use in the studio, stuff that is part of my guitar rig. So I was using those records as you know showcasing the records but also then using them as kind of a raw material the way that I 
made my album the way that I approach the manipulation of sound live. So trying to tie some of these ideas together and using these records that I'm really in love with as a jumping off point to kind of create something that was hopefully true to them, but also new. Right. Wow. Yeah, it sounded new because it felt like you actually isolated some. I didn't realize it was like just right off the the recording because it sounded like it, it got to a place where it was like the, you were like almost like pulling off the like individual instruments, you know? Everything I was doing, I was doing live right there. Yeah. So feeding the signal from one record or another into my gear, looping a piece of it, dubbing a piece of it, putting, saving something over here in this looper, sending it over to this other looper, slicing it up, putting it in reverse, putting it back in. So what other records were on there besides the one that you ended with, which I'll get to? Um, there was... Um, I started with a Lester Bowie solo trumpet piece that I really love. Um, and there was some... Uh, Miroslav Vitus. Uh, that's ECM. Isn't it's it? ECM yeah. record. Yeah, I played one of his. That's this kind of like funky track where he hasn't. He's a bass player, but he has another bass player on it. So it's this weird thing where there's like he's playing lead and bowing the bass. And it's kind of far out, and then there's another bass player in the background, kind of chugging along and getting get to this groove. The weird set of ideas coming together. I thought thought was really cool. And I played another one that was Miroslav with Terje Ripdoll and. Had one with the double bass might have been the Turgey Ripdoll record, and then but I played another one with Turgey Ripdoll, who's one of my favorite European guitarists, um, and Jack DeJanet. Played something from the Pat Metheny group. I, oh, I'm a big Pat Metheny. Me fan. too. So I, when I was in high school, I was like really into Pat Metheny. Right on. <laughs> because he's that, like that's I love that stuff, and I'm yeah. getting back into it now. Yeah, I really love that. Some of, there are a couple of those Pat Metheny group records that are yeah. some of my favorites. Pays dance. Yeah, I think I played some Jan Garbrecht that night maybe. Okay. Um, Played one record with Jan Hammer on it, who's a keyboard player from uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra. Right. Um, had some Trilok Gurtu in my bag, but I don't remember if I played that or not. I have to go back and look at my set list. So then, okay, so the, the big moment that I had was I love this song that I don't think I've ever talked about it with anybody because I don't know anyone <laughs> who listens to this stuff, but it's called Backwood Song, and it's on an album called Gateway, which is uh, Dave Holland. John Abercrombie, mm-hmm. who mostly, I mean, it, on that song, and yeah. Jack D. Jeanette. Yeah. And you, like, and I'm, the whole set is incredible, but, like, you you just drop this song at the end. It sort of was the climax of the set, really. Oh, yeah. And, like, I started freaking out. I'm with a bunch of friends, and if they're, like, electronic music people, or they're a lot, you know, disparate taste, but, like, no one knew what I was. I was like, it's it's Gateway. <laughs> like, no one had any, I couldn't relate it to anybody. I'm freaking out. And it's, like, it's such a good song. It's incredible. Maybe I could play it before the interview on this. You should. I, I would mean, love to. Great... Statute of Limitations. It might be out. That's over. a. It's a great, great thing. And everyone should hear that song. I, that I love that you. Um, that that was the, your moment. It's so. It's so funny because I think that really, that record was actually my. That was gonna make a horrible pun. That record was my entry point into <laughs> um, into the world of ECM records in a way. It was something that because when I was in college, I had a, f- a friend of mine who was a graduate student and an incredible guitar player and a, and a mentor of mine who's on my record actually. This guy, Dr. Kevin Patton, um, very good friend of mine, um, incredible guitarist. Of course, on my record, he's playing drums, but eventually, you know, make a record where <laughs> he's playing guitar. Um, but he was like one of those mentor characters where, you know, he was 
just old, just enough older than me where he had some secret knowledge, some secret mystical jazz knowledge that I had not found my way to yet, but we could hang. Yeah. And um, he was, so like I would, you know, go out to his loft in the outer reaches of Providence and he would sit me down and play me some records. And like one of those records was Gateway. Yeah. And I was like, whoa. It's perfect what is for you this? because it's not, it, it could sound like, Maybe it's like rock from like a jammy world. It could sound like it's like Prague. Mm-hmm. Like if you heard that out of context, you really wouldn't know what it is. If you're if you're like yeah, pinning it down in a genre yeah. way is tricky. <laughs> it's like and John Abercrombie. It's just oh ripping. It's God. just ripping. Unbelievable. Yeah, I think Pat Metheny, John Abercrombie, and Bill Frizzell are my favorite. I'm a huge Bill Frizzell Me fan. Me too. Me too. Unabashedly so. I mean, yes. Bill is he's a god. He is the best. He's a genius. Yeah. I'm so happy we got to talk about Bill Frizzell <laughs> on this podcast. Okay, that was my moment. I think I want to talk really quickly. Maybe this this is something that I don't know if it's gonna gonna hit with you. But do you feel like jazz is having a big moment right now, or is it just me? I mean, I think that you know, hard to say how the zeitgeist moves, but um, it seems like there it is more in people's consciousness now than it was five years ago. You know, I think that. I get a little nervous anytime anything has a big moment because that usually means that it's just a matter of time until, you know, it's going to be gone again, the the way that culture tends to eat itself these days. But um, I personally think it's really exciting that there is, there seems to be a larger audience and an open-mindedness towards some of these strains of jazz, quote jazz and jazz-related musics that people are putting out in the world right now you know how wide it is or how long it's gonna last who knows but yeah i mean what's not to love of like you know you know thundercat playing at coachella i mean that's that's when all things are right in the world you know i mean i don't know if he played at coachella this year but i remember i saw him at fyf a few years ago and I, i and i i went out and i was like i mean I was like, wow, huge chunks of the set that he was doing. It's just a, it was him and a guy playing Rhodes and a drummer, and they were just ripping, at, like outdoors at sunset to a ton of people. And I was like, this is the thing. This is great, you know. But that was like two or three years ago. So yeah. maybe it's just uh, well now he's maybe on. There's... He's on like the best, you know, the Grammy award winning like hip hop albums, too. right? On Kendrick's, obviously. So uh, those are all good things. Yeah, you know, I mean. We could take it apart a bit, but um, I like that there's whenever there's more when whenever I feel like you can perceive some more open mindedness in the way people are listening and what people will go see and listen to in terms of like and I mean open mindedness in a very general non political way like whenever you get people to shows and it's not a band singing a, singing songs you know. Then already, then you that you you've arrived at some open mindedness, you know. So, I I see the same kind of I get the same kind of uh, inspiration from, like, the success that Thundercat or you know the Kamasi Washington is as the same side of like Tim Hecker, you know. I think that it's all that to me is all part of maybe that's the way that I choose to see the world. But I think that the acceptance of things that are variously experimental or improvisational seems to be growing definitely and that's to me that's great point 
was at this weekend, one of the events for Red Bull Music Academy. It um, wasn't. It wasn't Zaytoven Metro Boomin. It was. Oh my God! Was it fire? Well, did you did you get a ticket or do you have a plug? I had a. a it was plug. on the list for the panel. Yeah, and well, then, I don't want to hear him talk. I want to hear him play. So, but it was you got preferred entrance if you had the panel bracelet. Wow, so man. I spent basically eight 6 hours. <laughs> yeah. Well, we went out to dinner in between the panel talk and the and the club. It was it was interesting. Who I mean, led the panel? Nas. Whoa. N O Z. No, not not oh, the writer. <laughs> Andrew Nas. Writer yeah, Nas. Yeah. Okay. Um, the panel was it was good, but you know, like. And it wasn't. Just what are you going to ask those guys? Yeah. Like, yeah, I make fire beats. Yeah, like, it wasn't, you can hear them all. It wasn't riveting. It was pretty cool to have that actually just happen. I thought, like, it was, it was, you know, you could tell these kids don't really are not really the center of attention very often, and they were yes. just like so happy, even though they're like Sunny Digital, Metro Boomin, are like two of the biggest stars oh, yeah. right now For in hip hop. Sure. But it's like a very behind the scenes thing. Obviously, Zaytoven is like this Godfather figure, um, but the club thing. Like, it was weird because the music is not really, like, like, we're in this place now where you can't, the most popular music, like, you can't really dance to it. It's really, like, kind of, like, dark and, like, masculine and aggressive. And it's, like, not, you can't know the words. I mean, you can't sing, rap along with Future. Were they not just playing, like, Future thugs. songs? Oh, they no, were. they were. They were, like, they were basically taking you through their story through the songs, like, like aux chord style, like they were just oh, pressing they, okay. play, so it wasn't... and then like yeah, this next one, like and then and then two and a half minutes of this like huge track, and people were you know rap hands all that, but, but it like, wasn't. Yeah, I was just sitting in there. I was like, what are we doing right now? Well, I what? think Metro can DJ. Some of those guys can't DJ. No, they don't. I think they some of them can. Yeah. I don't think they're asked to very often because even if you go see Esco, he it's more of like a show. He's like on right. the mic the whole time and playing songs, but it's not like he's scratching and no, mixing no. in and out and you know beat matching yeah. and all that stuff. But I was just like listening. And I was like, why? This is a strange moment in music right now in 2016. I was like, this music is like antisocial. Yeah, it's like, and we're in a club trying to like, what do people like? If this, there aren't like, you know, first kisses happen no. during, no. <laughs> during this you know like well it's because everybody's a nerd they all want to know yes. all this information instead of just like yo i'm enjoying this because it's really fun it's really good and i also think that people it, there's a lot of celebrity worship you know what i mean and i think those i think people are really like a kid that wants to be a producer metro boomin is his hero so he's trying to laser focus and like learn something as opposed to maybe just like absorbing it, which I think is probably the better way to do it. Just kind of go in there and enjoy it as opposed to trying to see what he's doing with his hands the whole time or whatever. Totally. Information. That's a really interesting. I didn't really ever think of it that way. It is. It's like you collect these songs a little bit. Yeah. You know, because there's so many. They're so hard to Too track many. down. They're so ephemeral. So it's like, oh, I know. You Just recognizing the song is enough. Yeah. You know? Oh, I know this one. Yep. So, okay. Very true. So speaking of Red Bull, speaking of music in the moment right now, lightning round question. What is cooler at the moment? And this will be a really good barometer for me. Like maybe I'm just living in a in a in a world where jazz is like everywhere. But in my opinion, it is jazz or Thrasher magazine. Oh, Thrasher magazine, no problem. It's true. Thrasher magazine has hit. I mean, the, the cool thing about that is that Thrasher is the real deal. And it's the OG, and everybody buys those clothes because they're cheap. Like a, a Thrasher hooded sweatshirt is probably forty bucks, fifty bucks, because it's like real skate shit. It's not yeah. like an it's, overpriced fashion version, but it'll go away like everything else. It's it's like a whole like lower, like there's like a whole district of this city. Yeah, that's like all you see is kids. But ja do you not feel like so jazz Red Bull 
Speaking of which, the headline in concert is like some pretty obscure old school jazz guys. N one, new one, Kamasi Washington. And there's a giant billboard on Lafayette of these guys. That is, and if you go into like any like restaurant, I feel like people like you know all these like trying the town places to play. I don't know. Maybe that's just something. No, because jazz is cool, but I also think a lot of people hear it as background music. That's true. I you know, think I think I, if I you just, you recognize it, yeah. so you like perk up. I think a lot of people just hear it as, as another thing that's playing. I couldn't tell if it's because I've gotten recently personally more into jazz that I've started to feel like it's more like around right now. I, or probably I, because you notice yeah, it more. That's yeah. what happens when you get in anything. You start picking up on other people, you know, doing it. Okay. Next one. So this is a little bit more about something at the moment that is like really hard to 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 not see. So I want to try to brainstorm. Can, basically, my to put in a question form. Can we brainstorm ways to publicize my new nickname for the neighborhood from Twenty Third Street to Astor Place, which is Athleisure Alley? Athleisure Alley is that's already that's it. We just did it. It's going to take off now. <laughs> is it? The is there that much athleisure, dude? So I live around there, and it's like Saturday, Sunday morning. It's like a parade, Fifth Avenue. The weirdest thing is, so men every, and women, oh, couples, <laughs> in their in their in their like white soled Nike, whatever, yeah. or any name a fucking brand. They all make the same shoes now, and they're wearing like tight outdoor shirt, voices. tight pants, yeah, uh, with like a Starbucks and the dog, or walking to the gym, walking to Soul Cycle. It's whatever. called getting older. Yeah. <laughs> combined with easy trend humping like how easy is it no one looks bad in that stuff that's the reason it's so popular really no one looks bad in it that's why the yoga pants thing took off a couple years ago because all girls were like wait this is comfortable and i look great in this and it's cheap i can wear this all the time but i i I swear to god you don't see anyone not wearing it in this neighborhood and fifth ave too is this you think about it's like a corridor of athleisure stores no you're now. right you're right because like even cole Hahn and like tory birch are selling this stuff yeah I so love it's tory like but, but that's right but speaking about outdoor voices they kind of ripped it off a little bit but uh so it's like obviously you got nike new mounts you got every reebok you got every store i think reebok uh, on fifth half already paragon and is on broadway it's like a big but now it's like even the ones that weren't like not in the sport where that every it's just, every company is it's making just this. another trend, man. It's I mean, so I think weird. it'll, I think that like anything else, we'll come back around and it'll it'll be you know people want to dress up again because that's the way it works. So okay, couple of things I want to touch on that are just on the moment right now. Why is like construction a thing? Why do I feel like people are using construction as an inspiration right oh, now? Oh, you mean. Richardson Hardware or off-white right. parking or the parking lot. There's a Ginza. bunch of other things though, because I've seen it that's not even off-white. But yes, those two. It's just it's again, man. Is it's it just, inexplicable? I think Richardson did it first, personally. The Richardson Hardware thing was the first thing I saw that was like touching on that. Is it because like America needs like infrastructure or something? Maybe. Is it maybe. like a middle class? I've never jobs, I've never thought that hard about it. I mean, I think it's just like anything else. It's like it starts. I'm sure the person who did it first has a, a legitimate, interesting reason behind it, and then it all it just gets ripped off from there. It it's, trickles down. But I've seen it a lot, too. I've commented about it. Two it's, guys at the Metro Boom and Sunny Digital Zaytoven thing were wearing the same denim jacket with this, like, and it's not off-white that I know of. I don't think. it's um, It just had white stripes on the back, and mm-hmm. it looked like a, like a... I know what you mean. It was so weird. Dude, I can't explain these kids anymore. You know what they buy? It's also like, the t- internet. to me, if I was wanting to get that look, I would go 
to fucking Dave's and buy Carhartts and wear it. Yeah. I'm not going to buy the $600 version of That's... Carhartts. That doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? We could go get the real ones for nothing. It's not about that, clearly. It's not about that. <laughs> it's not about that. Okay. Uh, more fun to pay attention to in the aftermath. Lemonade or Met Gala? Ooh. Probably lemonade. Whoa, really? Well, I think it touches more people, so you're getting a more varied group of opinions. I think than the the Met Gala thing is like pretty. I mean, it's gotten more like it was on E last night. You know, it's gotten pretty mass, but it's still. I mean, that stuff is pretty hard to digest for the normal person. Even me, who knows more than you should, it's like you look crazy. (laughs) I don't like you look insane. But they're clearly that was a purposeful yes choice. Uh, No, agreed. And I think the theme and the whole thing. I just think dressing for a theme is so dumb. I it's like Halloween. Why would you do that? And everyone is trying to be more social media um, ridiculous. Like it's like who can do the craziest thing? There was a dress that lit up based on tweet you know like based on social media metrics yeah yeah it's like a whole thing Uh, (laughs) so speaking of social question of the moment why are you not on snapchat yet because i am over 30 (laughs) no i just don't i don't care i mean i've looked at it um people have tried i just don't i don't need that really i also think that the reason it's popular is is because it's you know like unfiltered which i don't want to see i don't care like i have a life i can it's i I want to see the i like that like i like the polish of instagram i guess i don't really know i mean i look at it and it's a little mundane to me too i think it opens people up to doing like posting things that are just so boring like Kylie Jenner is like the king of Snapchat, and I've looked at it, and it's her like smiling in a car. Oh my like, god! Like what? What are you doing? Yeah, like what are you doing? Really weird. The filter thing, though, I I think that like the the weird, you know, like the faces and all that, the face swap and all that shit. Like I understand why that's popular. That's funny. That's like entertaining to almost anyone. So, but now I'm good. Like when people started swapping out for panda faces yeah. over the. Speaking of him, like panda. what? Panda, yeah. panda, 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 <laughs> panda, panda, panda. He's like not very. Did you did you hold on? Did you see the the Tim Westwood designer freestyle? It could be the worst freestyle of all time. Wait, but it but right. So weird, man. So he's got the number one song two weeks in a row. Yeah. Is that can Kanye literally make a number one song out of anything? Is that what that? Shows. I think that song, as much as I don't want to like it, good. it's pretty good. But he's not. No, he's not good. He's a one-hit wonder for sure. He's gone. It's over. That's but I think that it's um, – I think when you're in a position like Kanye or Drake or someone of that stature, if you hear a song like that and you get behind it – and Kanye West, he's not even on it or anything. There's no remix. He just literally put <laughs> it out and sampled it. Yeah. I mean, it's cool. I, I think that's cool. I think yeah. the song is – I mean, the song's – you know, I'm not gonna turn it off. It's true. It is like Kanye's version of when Drake used to hop on Migos or yeah. Conan. So speaking of Drake, last question: Did you listen to Views? Man, I've I I've listened to it a few times. I was out of town, so it wasn't. I didn't get the proper. I'm not into it though. Whew. I'm into it in a lot of ways, but I think it's um, I think the production is really good, and I think the hype machine was incredible i mean he sold like 900,000 albums in three days so clearly it doesn't matter what i think about it because it's selling um i just think it's a little too much of the same you know it's a little it's like the fifth album and it needs some variety and it's a little like i just it's hard to 
listen to a guy like that talk about girl problems in high school when you know he's filthy rich yeah. and one of the biggest celebrities in the world. It's like, I don't need you to be relatable anymore. You're not. So I haven't really listened to it because I thought it was, isn't it kind of more like that weird new like pan global reggae the thing? The hits are. Right. The, the, oh, but there's the other... Most of it is like classic 40, right. okay. like lush yeah. production and like, oh, you know, Drake. There's look, it's there's good moments on it for sure, but it's not what I was. So, do you think he wants to go for that work, like and what this other one, one dance? One like, dance is a banger, but the, it feels like he wants to be like the sound of the moment, kind of like how Bieber went to that tropical. I thing. think what he's gonna do is because he's very smart, and those people, his whole crew is very smart, and I think what they're gonna do is this album comes out, it sells very well, it appeals to, it appeals to, but I think it did alienate a lot of core uh, not core but older fans like me or you uh, and i think what he's gonna do is just put out lucy bangers on soundcloud yeah and just keep it hot you know put out stuff all summer long because if you look at drake's history True, of output put out a, another mixtape yeah there's just been it's you know and maybe he's for, trying to for di- rap fans maybe he's trying to differentiate right. you know the official album from the mixtape. right tape. and i think that he all but then with all those other songs like um Work and I, I can't. I'm not even paying attention. I don't know the names, but like Summer I, Sixteen. No, the ones that sound like super. Oh, oh, like, the, oh, all those controller. Yeah, controller one dance. But um, it sounds like he wants to be like Pitbull or something. Like he wants to be no, this, he's, like global. He, no, he's doing more of a Diplo move where it's like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna go. He wants to be. This like, is my thing. I'm gonna try. He it. wants to play in Rio in front of 250,000 people with an American flag draped around. I think that children. one dance is really, really good. Um and I think that it's good enough to where people. I don't think it matters what it actually sounds like. I think people, it's catchy and it's good. You know what I mean? I don't think people need to understand that it's like an African reference. I don't think that matters. You know, I think that music writers will beat that to death and and talk about it and investigate it. But the reality is that he sampled a catchy song and it's good. It doesn't really matter what the influence is. Well, wait till High Tunes, the Young Thug album comes out because now that Pablo and Views are out. They're kind of like, I'm I mean, not, I liked Pablo a lot, but it's like. I'm not expecting much from a Young Thug. Oh, he's my favorite. I mean, I like Young Thug, but I don't, I can't put him in the same category as Drake and oh, Kanye West. I, dude, Slime Seasons, all three are like. One through three. They're so good, man. <laughs> I like it all. It's I like just, my, that's my most listened to. That's like, I can't, I list, I celebrate his whole catalog. Wow, wow. Yeah, he's I, look, I, I like him, and I think it's good for the world that he's famous because I do think the whole thing is very interesting, and he's a complete weirdo in like a fun way. And I think he's very, very creative, and he's doing something different. I just don't think the music is there all the time. Oh, I don't. I don't think the music is it's there. So all the time. listenable. I, yeah, I think it's listenable, but I don't think there's like hits. That's true. And actually, Leor Cohen, if you watch, there's this CNBC sixty yeah. minute doc, not sixty minutes show, but it was like a little episode of um, one of their shows where he was like, you gotta like. Basically, told that so you got to tell people like what you're doing and like which song you want them to yeah. hear where and like which one you like feel is like the important ones. And he was like, "No, I, I don't want them to know." Yeah, and that's the problem with all these young guys is yeah. they just want to put out music. They don't care about the system, and the system works if you want it to work. If but you use it properly, it works. He's like, I, he's very consciously being like fucking album murky about murky. everything. Like he wants, he doesn't his whole thing right now is like using uncertainty and kind of mystery yeah. around everything and like hard to follow. And I think that can work in your favor until it doesn't work in yeah. your favor anymore because I think at a certain point you got to put out something that like that T.I. saw like when he was on About the Money yeah. with T.I. It's like oh wow this is very very good. You could just do this once in a while 
and keep that kind of thing going, you know, keep the, the more general public interested because Young Thug is still pretty niche, I think. Well, yeah. But, I mean, look, he could surprise me. I also think he's talented enough if he wanted to try to have a hit, he could just have one. It's not that big a deal. You know what I mean? I, I think he's, like you said, I think he's purposely trying not to. That's true. Which is something I have a hard time wrapping my head around because uh, you need to have a career. I hope, I wonder if Young Thug can ever be, like, the rapper of the moment or if he'll continue being a kind of, like, his own lane guy where he can, like, sell out with his fans, sell out Barclays, like, you know, J. Cole. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, he could, yeah. I think he could be, I mean, I don't want to compare him to J. Cole because J. Cole is Right, I don't want him to be a J. Cole. I I want him to be a, you know, uh, like a, I guess a Drake or a Kanye, but then they're, they're, that's, that's like main. You're, that's like yeah. Mom, you're fully mainstream. Moms need to understand yeah. you. I think he could go somewhere closer to that, though. I think he could be in the middle, but but when he wants to, I think he could put out like fire that all people would understand. I think it's just a, a, a him making that decision. Fingers crossed. Hey, I'm praying for you, man.